Well, we are uh, in the middle, right smack in the middle of a series called From Fantasy to Reality, The Renewed Imagination. And uh, we, we've discovered how, uh, in, in the course of this series, how our imaginations are one of our most consequential and powerful capacities that we have as human beings. It's our ability to see what is unseen, whether that's what we're going to have for lunch today uh, or a new business idea. Uh, Our imaginations have an amazing capacity to see what we cannot see with our eyes. God gave it to us, we've learned, so that we could interact with him and with his world in a way that is true and good and beautiful, so that our imaginations could connect with uh, what is his story. Uh, which is a beautiful and amazing story that calls us uh, to something greater. Um, and we've, we've looked at the major ways in which our imaginations have turned from God, turned from God's reality, turned from God's story, and turned curved in on ourselves about stories and seen and engaged with stories uh, that are ultimately false, that ultimately dehumanize us and, and, and alienate us and separate us. Um, and in each case, in each case where we've done that, God reaches out and offers to renew our imaginations and set them right so that he can set right our relationship with ourselves, with the world, and with him. So um, if you want to listen to other sermons in this series, you can go to our SoundCloud page, just search for Emmanuel Anglican on your podcast app, or you can go to our Facebook page where all the sermons are posted. In the next two weeks, we are going to look at the relational side of the imagination. A couple of tough topics in the next two weeks. This week we're going to look at paranoia fantasies. Next week we're going to look at sex and romance fantasies. Um, Human to human, how does our imagination impact the way we relate with other people? Um, Will they isolate us from other people and put us at enmity with other people? Or will they actually bring us into to real relationships with other people? Real, what uh, is sometimes called embodied, actual conversations with people in a way that, that brings us into greater intimacy with them in a way that God has designed. So today we're going to talk about uh, paranoia fantasies. And paranoia fantasies, as, I, as, I've, uh, as I've defined it here, is when we pretend to be a mind-reading judge at the expense of actual relationships. Paranoia fantasies, and there are other titles that we could give this. This is the best that I could think of, but if you could think of a better one, let me know. Um, But it's when we pretend that we can read minds and and we use that pretendability to then judge other people and then it damages our relationships with them. Uh, So mind reading. A mind reader is a person who can supposedly discern what another person is thinking, feeling, and intending. That's what it means to to read minds. A judge. A judge is a person appointed to pass a moral judgment upon another human being. So you you take those two things together. Well, I can read your motives, and what what I'm seeing with my x-ray vision, I don't like. And because I'm a judge over you, I can then pronounce judgment upon you. I can, I can assign moral failure or moral goodness to you. Um, this activity puts us out of touch 
with actual people, with what people are actually feeling, thinking, and intending. And it makes it more difficult for us to see our own blind spots. It makes us more blind to who we really are and our actual impact on people. And it separates us from people. We're trying to to, to draw close to people, but it's backfiring. Um, So internally, uh, we are entertaining a delusion wherein we can read minds and motives and and adjust accordingly. Um, we, We will know the right thing to do or say. But externally, it's an absolute disaster. Whenever we try to do this, externally, it alienates people, it confuses people, and it, does, it makes it harder for us to relate with them. It makes us cynical. In some cases, it makes us bitter. We become ensconced in that, and then it becomes harder to actually move into actual relationship. Um, we miss out on the benefit that real, honest conversation brings us. Um, and um, we miss out on the potential intimacy as well. Um, uh, on the conversations, on the learning that happens when we ask real humble uh, questions of real actual people. So um, uh, this is not unlike driving your car to the right destination using the wrong side of the highway. Okay, can you imagine doing that? Driving to the right destination, you're trying to, you're, you're trying to discern. We all have to discern. We all have to make judgment calls. Who's trustworthy, who's trustworthy and who's not? Um, what are people intending? What are they thinking and feeling? But you're doing that by trying to be a mind-reading judge. And, and as a result, you're going to drive on the wrong side of the highway and alienate and hurt a lot of people. And you're probably not going to get to your destination. There's lots of examples of, of, of how to do this. The Harvard Business Review recently ran an article called, quote, Don't Try to Read Your Employees' Minds. And um, it was written by uh, Stephen Burglis, and he writes about a manager, a real-life manager that he calls Vernon, not his real name. And Vernon's way of operating was to find a fault in a subordinate and then turn it into a clinical diagnosis. So he'd look for, he'd look for what does an employee do wrong, and then he turns it into a, a clinical diagnosis. So detail-oriented people were OCD, uh, while, while those who wandered uh, in dull meetings were labeled as ADHD. Um, and uh, one member of the group, James, that Vernon oversaw, um, he missed a few different deadlines, and he would, like, at 5.45, he would, like, cut out of the office. And, and Vernon, who the author says considers himself to be an excellent judge of character, looked at this available evidence and vented that James had a corner-cutting personality and that he was lazy. And, and what the author of the article noted was that Vernon really missed what was actually going on with James, which is that there was a breakdown uh, in trust between him and, and, and other employees. It wasn't a matter of being lazy. It was something else entirely. But Vernon missed it because he was a clairvoyant judge. Um, how do you think it would feel to be one of Vernon's employees, to be labeled, to be diagnosed? Maybe that's happened to you. And, and how does it feel? It feels frustrating. You feel attacked. And so did his employees. They felt bullied and um, personally slighted. So it, it happens at the expense of true relationships. Have you ever done this? Have you ever thought to yourself, you know what, I'm a pretty intuitive person. You know, all the other people out there, you know, their intuitions may be about here, but my intuitions, I can really read people. Ever thought that to yourself? Ever thought to yourself, I'm a pretty good judge of character. You know, I, I can see what people are thinking. I can see what they're feeling. Um, I'm emotionally intelligent. Maybe you thought that to yourself. Um, or, or maybe I've experienced enough pain 
to know. I've been around the block, and, and I've seen pretty much everything, and I know human nature is like way down here. So you, you just kind of lay that over everybody who reaches out to you or everybody in your life. You kind of lay that over their motives. Um, let's say uh, you, you're here at Emmanuel and uh, you encounter someone uh, who is unresponsive during the peace of Christ. You're like, hey, the peace of the Lord be always with you. And they're like, eh. Mm. And you're like, ah, oh, that person doesn't care about the peace of Christ. They're too cool for the peace of Christ. Uh, they're too cool for this conversation. They must think that they're better than me. Um, or what about you have a supervisor delegated some responsibilities to you that no one in the office wants? No one wants them. It's the thorniest, grittiest, most frustrating problem uh, that you've encountered in the office. And you're like, you know what? Yet again, my supervisor fails to lead. He's dumping all of his problems on me, all of her problems on me. You know, he or she is not a good leader, and they're lazy. So easy to do this, to be a mind-reading judge at the expense of actual relationships. Um, you know what? We, we do need to make judgment calls, don't we? We really do. A lot depends on knowing who's a trustworthy person, who's really wise and responds to feedback, who's foolish Who's not listening to feedback? Who do I need to set deadlines with and consequences with? And who's evil? Who do I need to, to protect myself with, as Henry Cloud says, with lawyers, guns, and money? We've got to make these judgment calls. And we also, beyond that, we need to relate with, with real people in a way that, uh, where we can see the grace of God, where we can actually participate in what God is doing in that person. And we can't do that if we're trying to read their minds. There is a better way and we're going to learn about that better way today. Um, we're going to look at a story um, about a relationship with tremendous potential, incredible potential. This relationship had so much potential, but it went bad due to a paranoia fantasy, totally destroyed because of the broken imagination. Um, and there's unnecessary pain and there's tragic consequences with major implications for an entire country. And all, all of it stems back to a breakdown in the imagination. This is the Saul and David story. Um, the situation is that David has just defeated Goliath. So uh, David is an unknown, an unpaid, he's a volunteer. Uh, and um, and he, he, he comes into a battlefield and he defeats one of Saul's worst problems which is Goliath, and all of the Philistines. The Philistines are like the chief rival to Israel, keeping them from peace and prosperity. It's one of Saul's problems that he can't fix. Someone comes in, fixes the problem, um, and um, uh, there's a momentum shift in the nation of Israel. There's a morale boost in the nation of Israel. There's real, there's real momentum for Saul, but he's not getting the credit. He's too insecure to let someone else take the credit. Um, and, um, uh, and this destabilizes him. And this bends his imagination away from God and God's story in on himself. Look with me uh, at 1 Samuel, page 3. 1 Samuel 18, verse 8. Well, let's look at verse 7. The women sang to one another. This is at post-Goliath. The women are out with their tambourines, okay, 
and they're singing to, uh, to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his tens of thousands. And then verse 8, Saul was very angry, and this saying displeased him. And you know what? It would probably displease all of us if we were in Saul's position, wouldn't it? You're the leader. You, you're supposed to be leading. Um, someone comes in, and they, they're getting the credit for a major thing, and then everyone's comparing the nobody to you in a, in a really obnoxious, hy- hyperbolic way. You know what I mean? Like, and they're doing it with tambourines. <laughs> um, you know? Um, so, uh, so the women are out, they're singing a song, and they're comparing you to a subordinate, and you know what? It would be okay for you to feel upset about this. Um, it would be okay for you to be like, you know what? i got to process this. And that's exactly what Saul should have done. That's exactly what Saul should have done. To let his imagination see what was unseen in that moment with all the tambourine noise, which is like, God is still good. And God's grace is active. And wow, God delivered us from the Egyptians. I think I can get over this. God's, God, is, God is showing favor to Israel, not for my own vindication, my own sake. He's showing his grace to Israel to show that he can bring out his, his own glory from dust. And he's going to do that through us. And he's promised us over and over again. Saul could have had um, uh, the, uh, the, the, the officials and the priestly line of Aaron to, hey, break out the Torah and read it to us. Break out the Torah and read it to me. He could have heard and seen what God had already said was true. He could have let his imagination feast on that. And that would have given him so much perspective. So much perspective. It's totally okay if a shepherd boy gets the glory. Because that's what's been happening ever since the youngest, the youngest son. You know, one, when, 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 when the youngest sons in, in the book of Genesis would always emerge victorious, all of that pointed to the fact that God chose the weak of the world to demonstrate his glory. And then Saul would have been like, you know what, I'm weak too. I'm just a clay-footed man. And I'm leading this nation of Israel by God's grace. And I'll continue to do that by God's grace. And in the process, I can mentor this young guy. I can partner with this young guy. I can let him have the credit. And I can let him sing to me in the process. What an amazing, imagine, what an amazing thing that would have been for for Saul to have perspective after this emotional destabilization. And for them, to, for them, for them to him to reach out to David, and, and mentor him, and partner with him, and give him responsibility. But that didn't happen because there was a breakdown in Saul's imagination. Um, verses eight B and nine. Look with me there. It's, um, it says there, uh, Saul saying to himself, "They've ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands. What more can he have but the kingdom?" And Saul eyed David from that day on. So what is Saul doing? He's filling in the blanks. He's filling in the blanks as to what David's motives are. David didn't tell him, hey, I want to take over your kingdom. David didn't tell him, hey, I'm eyeing, I'm, I'm gunning for your job. David told, David simply defeated Goliath. Saul eyed David. Saul didn't talk to David. Did you notice this? Saul eyed David with x-ray vision. He didn't talk to him. He didn't ask him a question. Hey, David, what are your motives? Ever ask someone that question? Hey, it kind of feels like you're kind of gunning for my job. Is that what's going on right now? Can we just have an honest conversation? 
He let his cynical, fearful, mind-reading posture get worse. And then he did what so many of us are tempted to do. He acted as if his paranoia fantasy was, was real. Have you ever done this? Have you ever acted as if your paranoia fantasy was real and, and tried to make it come true and try to act it out? That's when a lot of the damage happens. It starts in your mind and then it spreads out into actual relationships. He attacked the person whose mind he was attempting to read. Okay, Look with me in verses 10 through 15. The next day, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre. And he did day by day, as he did day by day. Saul had his spear in his hand. And Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. Um, uh, so Saul tried killing him with the spear, and then Saul tried killing him by sending him to the front lines. Um, Saul has become a pretend judge over David. He's become a pretend judge over David, deciding, you know what, I'm in the place of God here. I've decided that you're worthy of death as a mind-reading judge. Now I'm going to take action in my own hands, and not only am I judge, I'm executioner as well. So do you see how Saul is taking God's place in a way God has not asked him to? Saul has been asked by God to lead the nation, he has not been asked by God to take someone's life. He has not been asked by God to read David's motives. Um, now look with me at 1 Samuel 24. And this is, uh, I guess, yeah, we've got verses 1 through 7 describe the context here. So eventually what happens is that David becomes a fugitive from Saul. David has to flee, and he runs away. And in the process, what Saul does is he turns from his leadership role in leading the nation of Israel, and he turns towards a vigilante role and says, oh, I think I know what my job is. My job as king is to use all of my nation's resources to attack David. And it becomes cancerous. Saul tries to attack what could have been his own partner. And he uses his, his armies to do that is a major, major distraction from his true calling. David has to run. Uh, the priests of Nob get killed in the process. That's earlier in 1 Samuel. Um, and then we come to this cave that uh, Tyler so artistically uh, demonstrated to us. Um, David and his men are hiding in a cave as a fugitive. And then Saul comes in to relieve himself, okay? So he's vulnerable. And um, David sneaks up behind him, cuts his robe, um, and, um, uh, and, and Saul walks out. And Saul's about to get back on his way, back to chasing David. Um, and, and David walks out and, has a, and initiates what Saul should have initiated, which was a real conversation with a real person. David wants to break the spell of the paranoia fantasy and let truth again set the terms between he and Saul. And so in verses 9 through 12, he will explain his motives. He says to Saul, David bows down to Saul and says, why do you listen to the words of men who say, behold, David seeks your harm? 
Why did you let your imagination, Saul, be, be impacted by what these men are saying? Behold, this day your eyes have seen. So Saul, come into reality. Your eyes today have seen that I am not trying to take your place. If I were, I would have killed you. Um, uh, you've seen how the Lord gave you today into my hands in the cave. And some told, you, uh, told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, Father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may now know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. And then in verse 14, he says, Saul, you're, in a, you're on a fool's errand. Why, why did you seek me out? Well, who are you seeking out? Someone who is majorly your subordinate. Someone who has, who has no power against you. But even if I did get power to take your life, I didn't take your life. So Saul, come into reality. Come out of your, ang- uh, come out of your paranoia fantasy and see my real intentions. Um, this is an embodied relationship with a real person. A real conversation is happening. And here's the result of that. Verse 16, as soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, is that your voice, my son, David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. Do you see the spell being broken? Can you imagine Saul kind of coming to to the end of himself and, and realizing, oh my goodness, that's David. I hadn't been seeing David. I, 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 I'd been shadow boxing with a false David. I'd been, I'd been seeing something with my imagination that wasn't even there, which, which is a paranoid story of David trying to take me down. And for a moment, at least, he was, he was relieved. He was relieved of that fantasy. He was relieved of that burden. Um, some of us need that same relief. We do. Some of us need to come out of imaginary community. Our imaginary, the, the imaginary community in our minds of what idealistically it should look like or, or what that person is seeing or thinking. Some of us need to take off the, the, the x-ray goggles which are, which are making us blind to ourselves and to the people around us. We need to stop shadow boxing with imagined people. We need to stop dialoguing with false people and start dialoguing with real people, engaging with real people with real conversations and stop fooling ourselves that we can read people's minds, stop fooling ourselves that we can listen to their hearts and actually have a conversation with them and ask them to share their hearts with us. In other words, we need our relational imagination and our discernment to be shaped by the gospel so that our imagination serves our relationships and makes them stronger and makes them flourish. And that can happen. Through the cross, that can happen. Turn with me to to Matthew uh, 7, which is um, on page 6. Judge not that you not be judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use it, it will be measured to you. So if that's the case, if the judgment standard that you, use on your, uh, that you want used on yourself should be used towards other people, how would that change the way you look at other people? How do you want to be evaluated? Um, 
I think that most of us want people to believe the best about us. That if there's a doubt uh, as to whether we have bad intentions or good intentions, and like it's open to interpretation, it's kind of hermeneutically fuzzy, that like people err on the side of just a ch- what Ken Sandy calls a charitable judgment. Believing the best with the evidence available, with the facts available, making the best, most charitable interpretation of what's behind those actions. Um, we want people to have a disposition of affection, mercy, and love towards our weaknesses too. Sometimes our motives are wrong or impure. Sometimes we do fall short. But we want people, even if they can see that, or even if we confess that, to have a disposition of grace, mercy, and kindness towards us. Hey, don't judge me. Have you ever felt like, hey, don't judge me? What we're saying is, Use a gracious, charitable interpretation as you see my whole life, my whole context. Um, You want people to have the capacity to see not only the person you are right now, but also the person that you will be when God's grace has its way with you. Don't you? When your story is complete and you are brought completely into God's love and God's holiness, as God intends for all of us who confess the name of Christ to be, we want people to have a vision for that happening, and for them to treat us as people on a journey from where we are right now to where we eventually will be. And we need our imaginations in that process. We need to see what God is doing. It takes the imagination to see uh, what God is doing in His grace to complete us and make us new. Um, Now, the only way that we're going to have resources to do that with other people is through the gospel. The only way we're going to have resources to to evaluate people with reality and with grace is from the reality and grace of the cross of Christ. When he opened up his arms of love, he received false accusations against him and in so doing made a way for us to be perfect, perfect, to be be full of love, to be full of grace, and to to be completed. That is how grace has its way with us. And also, when we receive that, there is so much freedom to stop, uh, to stop judging people with uncharitable judgments, to stop spinning everything against people that we are suspicious of. When we are full of God's grace, we have that capacity. But if we cannot see the grace of God, we will presume to see the faults of others. And that's what was wrong with Saul. And that's what's wrong with so many of us in our unredeemed state. When we cannot see the grace of God for us, for others, for the world, we will presume to see the faults of others. And it happens over and over again. Um, uh, But when we can see the grace of God, it gives us so much freedom to come to terms with reality, with ourselves and with others. Listen to what Jesus says uh, in the rest of his teaching. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but you do not notice the log that is in your own eye? That's the blinded state of someone who can't see the grace of God. Um, Verse 5, you hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Here's what grace does. When we know the grace of God, when when we know um, that God's forgiveness of us uh, through Christ, it's unconditional. And, and through Christ, we will be made perfect. If we know that in our, in our souls, if we can see that in our imaginations, here's what it does. It, it, it gives us the, the, the grace to sit down with someone and come to reality with what impact our life is having on them. 
Henry Cloud, in his book Integrity, uh, talks about this process. And, um, and I tried it, and it's incredibly humbling. And it's essentially where you sit down with someone and you ask them, what impact am I having on you right now? In my life, when you spend time with me, when we interact, when we work on a project together, can you just help me see what impact, what wake am I leaving in your life? And then when they tell you, you don't get defensive, you simply write down their answer and you just say, tell me more. Tell me more. And tell me the last 10%. And it's only when they say, I don't have anything left to tell you. <laughs> Maybe you say, okay, what I'm hearing is, and you, in your best, as best you can, restate what they told you. And they say, is that what you're saying? And then let them tell you even more. And you know what you'll learn? You'll learn that there was a lack of alignment between what you thought, with the impact you thought you were having on this person, and, and the reality, what you were really, the impact you were really having. And, and friends, that is a wonderful way to practice the gospel because it is an opportunity for us to repent. It is an opportunity for us to repent. Would you please forgive me? Would you please forgive me for impacting you in this negative way? Will you help me be a better husband? Help me be a better friend. Help me. I want to be a better employee, better coworker. Can you help? Would you please help me? Um, that's what the gospel does. It brings us into alignment in a, in a way where grace is not left behind. And you know what it also does is it, it, gives us, uh, it gives us the capacity also to ask people the question, and this is humbling, to ask people the question, hey, you know what? I've been assuming, or I feel like, you intend this way, or you intend that way. What, or what are you intending? What did you intend with, with this action or that action? It gives us the freedom to interpret their actions in a charitable light if, we, if we're not in a place to ask them that question. And we're not always in a place to ask them that question. So we can begin to make charitable judgments of other people. Um, now the best thing that this does is that it reconnects our imagination with the good, true, and beautiful story of what God is doing in every single person, which is that he is seeking to renew them. Imagine this, that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit intend, not everyone receives it, not everyone says yes to this, but, but are seeking union with people. Even people that may hate you, or even people that may have been unkind to you, they're seeking union with someone that you are really turned off by because they are made in the image of God. Our imaginations give us the capacity to see the good, true, and beautiful reality that every person is made in the image of God. Our imaginations allow us to see people and say what a preacher Rankin Wilborn said, just imago Dei, image of God, image of God, image of God, image of God. What is God doing in this person's life? How will God bring glory to himself through dust? How will God redeem this person? How will God redeem this relationship? That's what grace gives us the capacity to do, to take off the x-ray visions, the, uh, the, the false x-ray goggles, which, which, which destroy our sight and put on, put, put on the eyes of grace, the eyes of Christ. Yes, we will still be using discernment. Yes, there will still be people to say, you know what, you're not a healthy person. I'm not going to choose to spend time with you. You can have grace in your heart and still say that. Um, but we will have the eyes of grace to see who is God seeking, who is God calling me to be in relationship with? Here's a prayer. I want to end today with a prayer from Ken Sandy, and this is from his article called Charitable Judgments. It's 
prayer that all of us need. Lord, help me to judge others as I want them to judge me, charitably, not critically, gently, not harshly, in humility, not pride. Help me to believe the best about others until the facts prove otherwise, to assume nothing, to seek all sides of the story, and to judge no one until I remove the log from my own eye. May I never bring only the law to find fault and condemn. Help me always to bring the gospel, to bring grace and hope and deliverance, as you, my God and my friend, have so graciously done for me. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.